Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back to the important part, everybody. This is the kickoff episode for 2023 with our first guest of the year. And what I have for you today is Adam Parker. It's a real treat. He is another strategist in the space and is going to give his 2023 outlook. This is a wonderful, wonderful episode, and I hope that you all enjoy it. Adam Parker is the CEO and founder of Trivariate Research. Prior to Trivariate Research, Adam was the founder and lead portfolio manager of Trivariate Capital, an equity long-short hedge fund. From 2017 to 2019, Adam worked as the director of quantitative strategy at Eminence Capital, reporting to the CEO and founder. Between 2010 and early 2017, Adam was the chief U.S. equity strategist and director of global quantitative research at Morgan Stanley, where he was acknowledged as a top strategist and quantitative researcher multiple times by Institutional Investor Magazine and named the number one strategist by portfolio managers in Greenwich Associates' Greenwich Survey. Adam was a member of Morgan Stanley's Global Investment Committee, a seven-person group responsible for asset allocation recommendations for the firm's $2 trillion private wealth network. Adam holds a PhD in statistics from Boston University, an MS in biostatistics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and a bachelor's in statistics from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. With that, let's get to the interview. Adam, hi, and welcome to the important part. I love having another strategist on because we just sit here and talk shop the whole time. I actually forget I'm even doing a podcast, but I'm super excited to have you, especially as my first guest of 2023 to lay out the year for everybody and tell us all what's going to happen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. All right. Well, let's start for anybody who's not familiar. I, I pity the fool who's not familiar with Adam Parker. Start with basically how you came up in the industry. You, we don't have to do, you know, the, the whole nuts to bolts, but do the, the quick summary of how you came up in the industry and what you're doing now and how much you love being a strategist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'll pick the highlights. I have a PhD in statistics, so that was five and a half years of my life, Liz. Wow. And then I spent 18 years doing research on stocks at two firms, Sanford Bernstein which is now part of the public company Alliance Bernstein, ticker AB, and Morgan Stanley. So I was a U.S. equity strategist and wrote quantitative research at Morgan Stanley. So that was a chunk of my life. I went to the buy side for a few years to a stock picking firm, bottom-up stock picking firm. And then we formed Trivariate Research about 18 months ago to help people think through key elements to investing in U.S. stocks. Okay. So starting your own research firm, first of all, in the middle of COVID, right? Yeah. Why? And, and I, I'm not questioning you. I, I just mean, <laughs> why did that feel like the right time? Is it because so many new investors had come into the market that there was an appetite for it? Or was it just time for you to go forge your own path, beat to the walk to the beat of your own drum? What was the impetus? It's a personal question, Liz, and I'll answer it personally. I think a lot of it was just where I am in my life, right? Uh -huh. You know, with a major self-realization that I never want to retire, that I like working, that I like wow. to smart people. About, Never? Well, Ever? at least not in the next 25 <laughs> years. You know? And so it's hard to have a 25-year employment agreement with a big firm. right? Yeah. And so yeah. I really kind of wanted to build something, have the flexibility to be where I want. You know, When I was on the buy side and consuming a lot of content, 
strategy, derivative strategy, quantitative research, I found there was a few sort of holes in the market in terms of content that I thought we could address. And they're typically around risk management. And it's been a good year mm-hmm. to think about risk management around position sizing. So what makes somebody take a 4% position of stock versus a 2% for those who do individual stocks? A lot of work on industries where context shifts and all of a sudden energy is important as an investor or all of a sudden the consumer or financials are. And so we, I think, provide good ta- context quantitatively, fundamentally, and from the macro perspective. So we do a lot of quantitative research as well. Most of that is around management decision-making. And so we found there's some holes in the market there. And that was sort of the opportunity for us, I think, in COVID and, and the recovery you know, from COVID to, to maybe be a little different. So over the last 18 months, you've had the luxury of being able to talk to clients through that period. 2022, obviously a painful year for everybody. And you, I think you just finished a client trip. You've been on the road talking about your 2023 outlook, and we will get into that in detail. But has there been a shift? And if so, in what areas of the questions that clients are asking? So let's say, what were they asking the beginning of 2022 versus what are they asking now? Are they more scared, less scared? Do you, is there a big theme that you've picked out so far? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And you know this, but a little bit of it depends on how that fund raised money, right? So a growth manager versus a value manager, if they have a dividend requirement, if they're cross-asset. So it could be a little bit, you know, preaching their own book. But certainly sure. from a year ago, there were two main concerns. One was the Fed and how maybe the Fed will get hawkish and if you think about the beginning of 2022, Fed fund futures were up a lot, but the actual Fed fund rate wasn't, right? So the actual Fed action, I think, was in March, right? So the, fir- the first liftoff, so mm-hmm. to speak. So yep. investors were certainly anticipating that before it happened. And so there was some concern uh, in the markets about, <clears throat> about the Fed path. And the second was, what appeared to be very optimistic earnings estimates. And so people were concerned about how S&P earnings might unfold at the same time they were concerned about the Fed. If I think about it now, a year later, there have been substantial downward earnings revisions. So I think about 2023 earnings, I think the S&P was at $252 in estimates in June. Mm-hmm. Yep. We were at 228 last. So there's been some material downward revisions. And obviously the Fed has done a number of things since a year ago to the point now where I think the consensus is actually they have to reverse course by the end of this calendar year. So I think corporate earnings and Fed are the biggest two changes year over year. Our own personal path has also been to really been hammering the table on the energy sector for the last 18 months. And, you know, energy is up a lot last year. And so there's two camps, those who want to chase it and those who think it's cyclical and it's over. And so some of my meetings we go through that that as well. But the, those are some of the bigger themes. I think we can we'll get more micro as you as you want. Yeah. So I mean the earnings stuff is interesting right now, especially because we're in the middle of, of fourth quarter earnings season. But there have been downward revisions. And you said they came from 252. Now we're down to 228, 229 for 2023. Really though, that's only about a nine to ten percent revision downward. The typical downward revision in a recession is more in the tune of 15 to 20% down. So you hear other strategists, other people with earnings targets that are closer to $200 a share. You're hearing stuff that sounds really scary. I think that it probably can get down to, let's say, a 10 to 15% 
revision from yeah. peak, which would be just a little bit more from here, but at least a contraction over 2022. Yeah, um, we, we agree, which is good. So I don't have to you know, <laughs> say anything. Contradictory. We don't have to fight live. <laughs> yeah. Where do we think 215 to 220 makes sense? It's kind of a funny story that'll probably resonate with you. But about eight or 10 years ago, maybe the smartest person I've ever worked with, uh, we decided to spend three months trying to predict S&P earnings. Oh, wow. This guy went to Caltech Physics, PhD Karantzu, who was a math professor. This guy's yeah. a gigantic CPU, okay? okay? We created this thing, I think it was called the Sector Weighted Equity Earnings Predictor, SWEEP. We, we were proud of the acronym, you know, sweeping yeah. macro to forecast the earnings, right? And uh -huh. we spent all of this horsepower, like killing an ant with a missile to try to forecast earnings. Uh -huh. And then live, it didn't really work, right? Because <laughs> corporate taxes come Crap. down and financial <laughs> earnings, the curve and, the, you know, oil prices and all the things that cause the volatility underlying. So that was sort of the three months effort with the smartest person I, I worked with. There's that approach. And then the other approach is you take the 20-year trend line and you say, you know, it's probably somewhere between today and that trend line. And then that gets you the same answer. Okay, so somewhere between three uh. minutes and three months with the smartest person <laughs> is probably the truth. Yeah. You get around 215 to 220. And I think what most investors probably aren't used to, certainly not in our lifetimes, in our investing lifetimes for sure, is having a nominal GDP this high. And so for those who aren't economists, you can have an 8% nominal GDP, an 8% CPI, and a zero real GDP, or you mm -hmm. can have a 2% nominal CPI, a 2% nominal GDP, a 2% CPI, and a zero. And they have different impacts on companies because if you produce widgets in a factory, you sell more units when the nominal GDP is eight, eight or nine, like it was earlier in 2022. So I think the environment's different with the starting point of a very high nominal GDP, and that makes it less likely earnings will collapse down to some of these bearish, top-down, scary folks that you alluded to. Okay, I agree. I guess if I had to put a dollar on it, I'd say somewhere between 210 and 215. Here, here's my my pushback on the GDP thing is profit margins. So look at, first of all, GDP is high. Inflation is high. Inflation has helped the top line of companies, has helped revenue grow, right? And it's helped companies create these larger profit margins, historically large profit margins. And now they've come down a bit, but there's more room for compression in profit margins because of what's likely to happen with inflation this year. We're already seeing it now, obviously not down to where we want it to be, but there's been pretty much a collapse in goods inflation, which which is a good thing. And we're likely to see outright deflation in goods. Services are a little bit trickier of a situation. But because inflation has helped the top line of companies, if it all turns on a dime, because in my opinion, consumers can turn on a dime. They can decide, you know what? I am no longer confident. I am scared. I am not going to spend because I am not sure that I'm going to have a job in the next six to 12 months. If it turns on a dime, doesn't that all, doesn't that theory come crashing down? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's some kernels of truth, what you said that may be slightly exaggerated on purpose by your question. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, I, I think you know, there's some differences in the constitution of the U.S. equity market now versus the past. So when I look at these CAPE or Schiller PE or some of these sort of older school academic approaches, they fail because the percentage of businesses in the market that actually produce things is lower. It's a more services-based economy, as you alluded mm -hmm. to. I think the number of companies, the percentage of companies in the 
U.S. equity market that even have any inventory dollars is, I think it's like 40% have zero inventory, right? So they're not producing anything. There's businesses like Search or mm-hmm. what's the thing called? Where you take pictures of yourself and you- Selfies? You, you think people care about you? No, TikTok? You know, social media. Instagram? All that stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you can tell I do zero of that. But like, you know, I think- you know, that stuff is a new business model. Software businesses are 80% margin businesses, right? So there's just sort of a different constitution. It's not just all widget makers and the like, like it was years ago. What does that mean? It means margins probably revert down and lower. I agree with that, but not all the way back to sort of troughs from 50 years of data that might be implied by, you know, one of the more bearish, you know, kind of top-down views, because I think the, the businesses are different and better than they used to be. Oh, and I was just going to ask that. Putting your kind of management consultation hat on, are companies just better at at capital stewardship today? And is that why yeah, why a, you see sort of this long term trend upward in margins? Well, I think it's mix is in part like the sector mix. That's definitely part of it. Look, we we have a business. Triverit has a pretty big business. Two corporations, right? We mm-hmm. go in and help management teams think about capital deployment. And that's, I'd say the number one boardroom question. If you're a CEO, I guess I phrase it this way, what would you want to be said about you when you finished your job? It would probably be you were a good steward of capital, right? Which means, did you do buybacks effectively? What was your dividend strategy? What was your M&A strategy? How did you spend CapEx and R&D? And was it sort of efficacious? Did it generate excess return? You know, your balance sheet, leverage, et cetera. So, we do a lot of kind of markets, rewards, or penalties for those capital use, you know, capital use and its consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big, a big and important topic that will always be top of mind for investors. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's run through the outlook for 23. There were some big parts of it that I thought were really interesting and really good for you to point out okay. to investors. The first of which, which I know you've talked about on air, but I, I want to really get into it here. There's this temptation by all of us, and I would put everybody in that category, individual investors, institutional investors, strategists, anybody, to break up the calendar year into pieces. And we do it by quarter, obviously, for earnings reasons. Lately, it's been into halves. And you point out most people are saying the first half is going to be bad, the second half is going to be better. I would argue that that usually is the battle cry because it's easier to push it out into the future and say, oh, it'll be better later. You're never wrong. You're just early. So this temptation to break it up into first half versus second half, you argue in your outlook that consensus is saying so decidedly that the first half is going to be bad and the second half is going to be better that you should listen to consensus and then do the opposite. Can you talk us through that and why? Well, there's a couple of things. You're... (laughs) One is, you know, whenever there's a consensus, it typically isn't right. So just a general strategy Mm -hmm. of doing the opposite probably isn't a terrible idea. We actually demonstrated that in a pretty big research note in December. We actually analyzed the sell side stock ratings. So meaning, you know, if everyone loves a stock and you look at the subsequent returns of those that are loved, they actually lag the subsequent returns of stocks that are not as loved. We, We looked at that for both price targets and you know, so the typical buy, hold, sell ratings that the sell side has. So we actually had stock level empirical evidence that doing the opposite can be fruitful. So mm-hmm. I thought that was, you know, kind of emboldened by that kind of big work we did in December. Every meeting I did second half of December, every outlook from every big firm or lower, earlier, higher, later. And I started thinking about it in the context of earnings 
and you know, obviously when you, when you do strategy, one of the things you think about is earnings and relative estimate achievability. And as we just alluded to a few minutes ago, we've already seen pretty big downward earnings revisions for 2023. So you might, your, your, your listeners might be wondering, well, what about 2024, right? Maybe they think it's lazy, but the way sell side analysts work is they wait for this January earnings season to happen. That finishes the 2022 calendar year. Then you kind of sharpen your pencil, you drag a few rows and you publish your 2024 number. So my suspicion is that they'll put numbers that are more optimistic in 24 than 23. I think you're right that the 23 numbers have downward revisions, but the market can go up when there's a little bit of downward revisions. It's more if they set up numbers. So I think what will happen is people will look at the first half of this year and say, you know what? More of the Fed hawkishness is behind us than in front of us. More of the 23 revisions are down in the, behind us than in front of us. But now in the middle of this year, whoa, the 24 numbers are kind of high. We don't really have a V-shaped recovery or a huge acceleration. We might even have a bit of a wishy-washy bathtub-shaped recovery, you know, because, you know, there's not a lot of government incremental fiscal stimulus or certainly incremental accommodative policy. We'll see if by the end of this year the Fed gets dovish or not, because maybe that is a catalyst for later in the year. But it seems awfully premature at this point. So I, I think it's a combination of doing the opposite of consensus and thinking about the relative revisions for 23 and 24. And you made a really good point when you set up that question, which I totally agree with, which is people can't really fathom stuff more than six months in, in the future. I remember when I was doing my PhD, you know, it's like a multiple year project. And somebody, mm-hmm. a, a smart person said, Adam, whenever somebody asks you when you're going to be finished, just say in six months. It's not so soon <laughs> they're going to think you're almost done. And it's not so far away. They're like, wow, that's horrible. They'll forget. They'll yeah, forget. Right. It's seven so months later. Forget. They're like, when are you so, done? <laughs> so I think the six months out, like, you know, whatever. And, and so I think the other reason that these sell-side strategy guys like that lower, earlier, higher later is it's like they can't be wrong. Oh, it was a little lower. than You know, there's that double-breaking putt element that people like. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my view, obviously, most of what we do for our, our clients is not really making the market call, right? It's much more about, you know, opportunities within that and sort of context around the things we talked about risk management, position sizing, industry frameworks, and the, and the like. So, yeah. 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 It's it's okay. it's cheating a little. Yeah. Cheating. I mean, you know, we use it, right? We use the calendar as some kind of right. mark to create our thoughts or to, to have a certain outlook over a certain period. Yeah. Um, but I've always really thought and, and I've argued that the market doesn't care about what the date is on the calendar. It do, Nothing actually changed from December 31st to January 1st, but mentally... Right. It changes for investors and suddenly we're in a new year. Yeah, and and it, that paid. means that it, it's all about how people get paid. Right. And, it, you know, it's it, it, you get paid on some, you know, f- you know, relative performance for that year, relative to some index right. or, you know, I think about that a lot from one of the main things we research. So I'm just saying human incentives around compensation. People don't intentionally damage their own financial trajectory. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, and and the concept that you talked about, I I used to analyze money managers and, you know, money managers rate themselves on if they fall in the top quintile or the bottom quintile versus all their peers. But you could easily show the trends that top quintile money managers underperformed for the following one to three year period and bottom quintile outperformed for the following one to three year period. Yet the star ratings on Morningstar heavily dependent on what their quintile rating is, right? And and you can do studies on that too. So anyway, I that, think it's it's human nature. It's that, that kind of top ticking human to, nature. It's behavioral science. That's why the analyst ratings don't work. You just nail it. It's the same human. Because by the time everyone upgrades the stock, the stock's already up a ton, yeah. right? So there's almost like a sort of, you know, they're, they're by definition trying to upgrade stuff with positive price momentum. I mean, the stock's up a lot, but then they're late. 
Right. Right. They're late yeah. on average for large baskets yeah. of socks. They're late. Yeah. It's the same human phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. So my listeners know I've been bearish for a while. So it would be no surprise that I'm going to outline a risk that I think is out there. One of them being that this takes a lot longer than anybody expects. This whole cycle takes a lot longer or it drags on and we kind of end up in this, we're not sure if we're going to have a recession or not purgatory for a long, long time. And I think that purgatory is much worse for the market than just getting it out of the way and knowing the answer. One of the things that you talk about in your outlook is this idea of erosion, but not implosion of the economy. Walk me through that. And is that good or bad? Because erosion could happen over a long course of time and actually be more painful as we wait. An implosion is like, you know, a piece of dynamite, you blow it up and then you start recovering faster. Yeah. You know, I think in some ways that's like the biggest debate right? you just highlighted because I, I, I actually think that the 2024 numbers, if you're buying a stock right now and you're pitching it to your boss and you're, you know, a junior analyst, you say, hey, Liz, I love this stock. You're almost guaranteed to have much higher 2024 estimates right now than 23. You're so-called yep. underwriting an optimistic recovery. Right. And my suspicion is that won't be correct. That what I mean by road on quote is just that you know I don't think we're gonna have the down 30 earnings. So when people go back to these really horrible you know COVID or financial crisis or TMT, I think those down scenarios are too severe. However, those recoveries were so-called V-shaped or very rapid mm-hmm. because you had tons of fiscal stimulus helicopter money, you know, massively accommodated monetary policy. And this time we're kind of, at least for now, still going the other direction, right? We're not talking about incremental fiscal stimulus. And we're certainly not talking about accommodation, at least for the next several months. And you have, in fact, the balance sheet is shrinking finally. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's harder to sit here and say there's a V-shaped recovery. So I guess what I mean by that is maybe there's a reasonable chance that 24 numbers are actually flat with 23. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I'm underwriting something that, turns out to be pretty optimistic. And that would be the case for things selling off later in the year because people are, they keep waiting for this recovery six months hence that's disappointing. And I I definitely could see that being the case over the next 18 months. It's not obvious to me why we'd have a big sort of V-shaped recovery. Now, why do we erode and not implode? Why isn't it just an implosion? You know, I think it's still a function of the fact we're kind of, of pig through the snake is the right analogy, but we're still working (laughs) our way through through COVID, right? Where... (laughs) Think about it if you're an industrial company. I, don't, I, I think probably a lot of your followers know it was hard to get certain products. You couldn't get a car. Mm-hmm. Used car pricing. All of us have some friend who bought an SUV for 30 grand and used it for two years and then sold it for 34 grand. Like mm-hmm. that's a function of, of COVID and, and manufacturing and, and lack of access to silicon and other supplies, right? So I think there's a number of parts of the market where we would have seen a sharper up cycle and a sharper down cycle based on demand, but those products weren't sold because they couldn't produce them. And so it actually prolonged the cycle perversely. There's a couple of counter examples that will resonate with everybody. Probably the most kind of highest cycle and biggest collapse that I can see is in a barbecues, right? So Weber like the grills. Traeger, okay. you know, they both went public in 2021. The plot the stocks, W-E-B-R and C-O-O-K is Traeger. These okay. are expensive growth. Everybody in America who could afford one was like, wow, I have to eat outside and I shouldn't go to a restaurant. And they totally upped their barbecue game. Got As it. a result of yeah. that, the stocks, these went public. Great. And the moment they went public, 
basically zero people needed another grill because you don't. <laughs> so, so you don't, that, you don't have multiple grills, right? So just the, the, nerd, the nerd part of me would say that was a high amplitude, short periodicity cycle. That was a you know implosion, not an erosion. But if you're a big uh, industrial maker of washing machines or other things. Maybe there was tons demanded on you, but you couldn't meet all the men because you didn't have the silicon and the copper and other stuff. Now, as a CEO, maybe you, you called your procurement officer and you said, hey, chucklehead, get me some more stuff. You're hurting my revenue. But now you're reaping the benefits of it, which is that you have an erosion because you didn't sell as many as you could have earlier in the cycle. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so I think there's parts of auto and industrials where, where I don't think you'll see the collapse. So I, I think there's some airplane stuff and some aircraft demand and big ticket stuff that could make the cycle a little bit smoother than collapse because of COVID. And I could point to okay. several, several areas like that. Okay. Well, and I, and I also think some of it is we have to check our muscle memory. Our, our muscle memory says that the last recession lasted like 17 minutes, right? And <laughs> right. we bounced off the bottom very hard and just went up almost with reckless abandon. And there were certain industry groups that we knew exactly what the turning point was. We knew exactly what the catalyst was. As soon as we shut down, that helped all the stay-at-home plays, right? As soon as we reopened, that helped all the reopening plays. And you could very clearly delineate, and you could almost watch things. I'm going to use an example, something like Peloton, right? You could almost watch it happen, and it seemed pretty obvious what was happening because of just human behavior. So our muscle memory is that. And I think this is going to end up being something completely different that, to your point, you almost don't see it while it's happening. Look, that you're, we're talking about risks and risk management. Look, I was running the fund in summer of 2020, and I wrote in my, my letter, you know, as a former Morgan Stanley employee, I, I made this observation in my quarterly letter to my investors that I didn't think it made sense that Zoom was worth more than Morgan Stanley. Hmm. As I was writing the letter, there was a brief period, I think it was in July or August of 2020, but... There was a brief period where Zoom was worth more than Morgan Stanley plus Goldman Sachs combined. And wow. so for an old school person like me, I, me, I had like a modified seizure. Like that makes no sense. <laughs> these two have 18 billion, not bring profit. They're like, come on, these guys, you know, have no IP that appears to, there's a lot of competitors, there's no moat, and this thing's going to have 600 million of profit. How can that make sense, right? And so we started at that point creating a work from home and reopening basket, looking at the correlation of every security to the work from home and reopening basket, and then making sure we weren't all sides on that. So giving a real-time example for your listeners, on the November day where Pfizer vaccine was announced, mm-hmm. if you were holding, if you were shorting reopening stocks, you got your face ripped off. Mm-hmm. We did okay that day. The market was up 2 2.5% on that one on one day. And we were like up 10 or 20 bips. And you'd be like, wow, you're a horrible investor. If you're mm-hmm. running 40% net long, you should be up 1%. But we weren't because you look down my list of 40 longs and 60 shorts. We were short an entertainment rate that happened to have some mm. AMC theaters on a lot. The stock went from 10 to 16 in eight seconds, right? right? So that's an example of the risk management where you have to be aware of things like reopening or work from home or quality reopening or junk work from home or in this environment, obviously inflation exposed, you know, yeah. and the like. So I totally hear you. And we do a lot of that sort of tagging stocks to look at exposures to help to help our, our, our investors. That's a big part of what we do. So do we, and, and I don't want to make it this clear cut because it never is, but in an environment where it's going to erode, not implode, maybe it takes longer, maybe we don't see the monster coming as it's approaching us. Right. Do we turn to be aggressive or defensive? And if we're talking about 
both, right? If you if you're going to say are aggressive in this area and defensive in this area, the defensive piece. This is another piece I picked out from your writing. The, the defensive stuff is really expensive, right? And yeah. as a prudent investor or as somebody who's giving others investment advice and I'll put myself in this category too, I feel irresponsible telling people to go buy the most expensive stuff out there, right? Yeah. Even if defensives make sense, so to speak, in this environment. Yeah, look, why do people buy consumer stables and utilities, which are the traditionally defensive sectors? Because if the earnings collapse and we're wrong and it's more implode than erode, then the relative estimate achievability of staples and utilities will be better. Their numbers will be 5% too high and everyone else will be 20% too high and they'll sort of, feel like a safer place to be. Now, your, your point's the next one. Well, if they're at 27 times earnings and the market's at 18, I'm already paying so much for that extra relative estimate achievability that I find that worrisome. And that's kind of what we were articulating in this note the other day was, you know, hey, probably don't, I got to find better places to go. We called it one of the least offensive defenses. Because mm -hmm. I'm offended by paying 27 times for Pepsi. Right. Or <laughs> right. It's like, that just, come on, I got to be able to do better than that. So we either find low beta names or we looked at the last 10 downturns of 10% or more and said which industries tend to relatively outperform and which stocks are cheap within there. So I think there's, you either have to play slightly more attractive or less offensive defense. That's one area. Okay. I think the other is maybe you can buy some cyclicals that are so cheap where the estimates are already down a ton where people just assume it's a recession and maybe it's not quite as bad as they think. And I can kind of improve my balance sheet even through this. So we talk about energy and metals, consumer finance, I think is a great area for that, where when you look at the companies, you know, they just, they're probably discounting too negative of a consumer outcome. And so that the industry as a whole is basically at trough valuations, implying much bigger delinquencies that are likely to unfold. So if it's halfway between the negative estimates and where they are, a lot of these things at five, six, seven times earnings are just too cheap. Yeah. And I think a good way to play it. And the third way, I guess, would be some growth that even in my road outlook will have just better cash flows, revenues, and earnings in 2024 than in 2022, such that, you know, and there's a number of those names that can kind of grow their way through an erosion, so to speak, that have pricing power. Maybe it's, you know, United Health or, you know, other industries in the market. They can probably have the pricing power and continue to do okay. I think it's got to be one of those three ways, kind of prudent defense, cheap cyclicals, or kind of growth that can power through because other parts of the market probably still have estimates that are too high, as you suggest. Yeah. Okay. So I've got this page in your outlook up in front of me right now, and it's uh -oh. basically your your sector Okay. Your sector calls. So the the green, yellow, red. So I know that the answer to this is one of the greens. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's a question. And this is back to the muscle memory. If we think back to the global financial crisis, that was largely centered around the financial sector, right? Those got hit the hardest, understandably so. They also recovered the strongest afterwards, right? And that was also a time, if you just look at that from a size category perspective, mid caps beat both large and small, because there at the time were a lot of regional banks in the mid-cap index. If you look back at the dot-com bust, technology obviously got hit the hardest by that, recovered nicely afterwards. But both of those took a decent amount of time. I mean, those were long, drawn-out, sort of painful processes to go through. Is there a sector in this environment? So in, let's make an assumption. Let's make an assumption that we have a mild recession. Is there a sector in this environment that either you would look at as causing some of this or that got hit 
really hard and should do well on the other side? Is there like what's going to come out as the darling on the other side of this if there is such a thing in sector speak? Um, I like the way you phrase that. There's sort of three areas that I'm not recommending now. Okay. And I think you'll want to own at some point in the next six to 12 months for a one to three year investment. Okay. You can answer it that way. Sure. And say one is home builders. They're dirt oh, cheap. Same. On, on I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. But you saw from KB and others recently, like the earnings are going to collapse because there's massive cancellations. But on the other side of that, we still short structures. We still don't have the correct aligning of, of the right places to live in the right parts of the country, north to south, urban to suburban and the like. So it's hard to say, yeah, these look optically super cheap at two to six times earnings, two to seven times earnings, when we know the earnings are going to zero for a lot of these companies because of cancellations. But on the other side of that, I'm going to want to own them. So I think it's a game of chicken on when I get in or what. I think if you had a three-year horizon, you say, I don't care if I'm down 30%, to be up to 100%, I'll take it. You can yep. buy the home builders now. Um, okay. So that's one. Two is metals. And I think the mm-hmm. price action in Q4 should really make people stand up straight. There were downward earnings revisions, the stocks were up. Why? Because there was no inventory built. People know we're going to be short copper and aluminum probably in the second half of this year and the next year. And so these companies can, they're just improving their balance sheets from heavily indebted so called junk stocks to basically pretty strongly free cash flow generative. So you know, I think that's another area where investors haven't really had to pay attention very much. You can kind of operate your whole career without knowing a lot about copper. But mm-hmm. I think that's an area that will be good in that same horizon. And then despite the massive one we've already seen, I'm probably pretty optimistic still on energy on any one, three, five and 10 year outlook, because I think demand growth is still going to be pretty strong. On the stocks or on the commodity or both? On the stocks. Okay. The commodity also will be highly correlated. I think the new trough level at recession for oil will be higher than the previous trough. And I think the new peak will be higher going forward because demand, you know, what's quote different this time is ESG isn't really a demand concept, right? People don't say, I'm not going to drive my car, fly my plane because I'm concerned about the environment. It's been a supply issue where there's been some issues around creating supply. And so that creates demand growth that exceeds supply growth. So I'm uh, pretty bullish. I think those three areas will be good. It's other other areas, just quickly, the consumer discretionary, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Had its worst Q4 in a long time. In fact, yep. as far as we can tell, it's the first time ever where the S&P was up more than 5% in a quarter and consumer discretionary was down you know, 10% or more. So it has not been a good idea to bet against the U.S. consumer for your, you know, our lifetimes, but mm-hmm. it just has been. And I think at some point this year, it's probably too early, but you're going to want to buy consumer. I think you're going to want to buy them a week before the Fed does their cut. So if, if the Fed does ah. cut in December, you want to buy it in November or whatever. And you got to call. You got to call <clears throat> what the Fed's going to do. I think so because every consumer analyst from 2008 to 2018 thought they were amazing stock pickers. And then I look back. Yeah. And the, the way the, <laughs> you're supposed to buy, it turned out if you if you did it the day that the Fed did the surprise 75 bips cut and you held it for 10 years, you massively outperformed. And yeah. so my suspicion is it was more rate sensitive ex post than people thought at the time. One last one, I'm throwing some stuff at you, but one last That's one great. is uh, software. So every person right now, the consensus thing is, you know, we talked about lower than higher. The other one is I can't own any companies that lose money. They have to mm-hmm. all generate cash flow. And it's like, really? Because any new business that starts with a good idea doesn't generate cash flow. 
In fact, I think 40% of all software companies with 500 million or more in revenue still lose money. So I think when you start a business, you lose money, right? Mm -hmm. And you grow. So you're not really, you shouldn't sit, take a step back and say, I need immediate cash flows earnings right now or it's garbage. That's obviously yeah. ridiculous. And so when you look at EV to gross profit, which is a metric a lot of people use for growth companies in, in tech and other areas, it got, you know, bubble like multiples 18 months ago, but they've collapsed to the point now where they're only a couple turns above long-term averages. And a lot of those companies will have, even in a road non-employed environment that we're thinking about, 30 to 50% gross profit growth. So you're going to look back a year from now and say, these things are cheap on EV to gross profit. Why do I care about EV to gross profit? Because big guys, you know, megatechs, they buy it for the gross profit and whack all the costs below that. So they can become pretty attractive targets. And as you talk yeah. about the small and mid cap in your, in your question, small and mid caps are cheap. You know, seven times for micro, I think 11 times for, for small. So all of a sudden, you know, if you want to spin a little bit of a bull case on these software names six, 12 months from now, it'll be that you need some growth. They're the ones with the gross profit growth. They're pretty cheap. And all of a sudden, Microsoft and Google and everybody can pick these things up for you know, $10 billion acquisition on a $5 billion market cap company is, is nothing for, their, for those guys. So I think yeah. that's something to look out for in the next six months as well. That could be, I don't know, a darling, but people will want to own those again at some point. Yeah. Well, and one of the things in my outlook for this year was that Fama French is back, the Fama French model, which has not worked for almost 20 years. But that whole small over big and value over growth, the premium that should be awarded to companies that fall in those categories. And then there's there should be some profitability screens, maybe, you know, for some of that stuff, especially the large cap ones. But the Fama French model, I think, is back. And I think that there's a shift going on under the surface and, and some of it on top of the surface, not just of U.S. stocks, where maybe the large caps are not the ones that pull us out, but also U.S. versus international. I think it's, what, year 15? I don't even know how many years the U.S. has looked better than than international. And yeah. again, it, just because it's been a long time doesn't mean that anybody's due for anything. But when you look at all the things that the U.S. has to unwind still and a lot of the things that we've already covered in this interview – there's probably a little bit more mud to trudge through in the U.S. than there is in some other countries, and they could get through it quicker. So quick, yeah. give, me your, give me your quick response on international, and then we'll wrap it up. Probably the most trouble I got in when I worked at Morgan Stanley is I said in a, in a public setting that Europe was great for vacation, but not for stocks. <laughs> uh, you know, that, I will say, you know, not to vitriol your lap, but that was directionally correct mm -hmm. uh, in that it wasn't good for stocks. And I, I still think it's great for vacation, uh, most of it. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I hear you. It's going to come down to the pace of, of monetary policy. I still think they have more. I focus on the public equities. And I think the public equities there just have an inferior set of growth trajectory in terms of, you know, some of the exciting stuff that happens in tech and healthcare and, and other parts of the, the growth market, even to a lesser extent, fintech an area you know well. So I think part of it's the constitution. I think the bull case for, say, European equities be they have more exposure to China. Mm. And so if China exposure becomes a positive again in a reopening scenario, that could maybe be a positive. If it becomes more accommodative in Europe earlier, that could be a positive. And maybe, maybe a subtle point somebody can make is, hey, look, dollar euro kind of late September was where we got kind of at the maximum peak of strengthening. You're already starting to weaken a little. So, you know, we can mm -hmm. see how people would interpret it, but I guess I'll focus on the U S and make the bet that on a, on a longer term view, it'll still just be a superior set of assets within, within U S equities. 
Oh, okay. Well, they heard it. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I went over not too bad this time, but thank you so much. I look forward to hearing you all over the place on TV and everywhere else. I look forward to reading your stuff every single time it comes out. So thank you. And thank you for taking time out of your day for our listeners. Anytime, anytime. Happy back anytime. Well, that was great. I mean, so much we can learn from him. I could probably do four more episodes with him on everything that he thinks about the market, both earnings, macro-wise, everything, positioning. We didn't even get into some of his risk metrics. I think some of the most interesting parts just that I'm taking away from this, and, and this goes back to the pieces that I took out of his outlook, but this temptation to break the calendar up into halves or quarters. And and we have to do that on some level because that's just the way that the corporate earnings calendar works. And, and it helps us sort of uh, break it up into chunks as investors and, and have time horizons that are different lengths. But the idea of listening to consensus and then doing the opposite, because consensus typically isn't right. And it's almost like a field of wheat. It all sort of blows in one direction. And and I'm victim to that on some levels, right? There's there's a lot of calls that have been out there for a while now, and, and I've been pretty bearish for a while and been calling for a recession. And that is now pretty consensus-y. So when you think about what consensus is, the, the fact of the matter is that what we imagine as consensus or as what we imagine as analysts and strategists out here is probably never going to be exactly how it shakes out. And the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. So maybe it's not as bad as some people think, but it's likely also not as good or as unscathed as as others think. And the other thing that he said that that I think is really interesting, people can't really fathom stuff more than six months out. So beware of the idea of just kind of kicking it down the road. Like things will get better when, things will get better later. It, if we just wait, everything will be fine. And from a long-term investment point of view, that is absolutely correct. If you just wait, yes, things usually do shake out higher over a longer period of time, 10 to 15 years, sure. It's more that how much of a stomach do we have in the meantime? And, and if you have clients that you're telling how to invest their money, how much of a stomach do they have for you to be wrong? And for how long will they wait for you to be wrong? So six months is kind of a good rule of thumb to think about that. And then the other big thing out of this is that erosion versus implosion of the economy. Part of this is that he pointed out the market is just different. The, the sector makeup of the market is different. The sector makeup of the economy is different. And the way that this crisis has occurred is different. So this doesn't necessarily have to happen in what I call just one big dynamite blowing everything up and ending up this huge implosion, it could end up being an erosion that that we don't even see as it's happening. We don't have such a clear set of guidelines about this caused that. Uh, and that's where it gets really tricky for investors. So you have to balance that sort of being aggressive and and investing in things that it, over the next one to three years you think are going to be an opportunistic place to be but also maintaining some posture in the portfolio that does protect you if there is a pending implosion. Uh, but it sounds like he doesn't think that that's as likely. So that's it for the episode with Adam. That is the kickoff of our 2023 guests. I am so grateful for all of you for listening to all of last season, and I'm excited to bring you what's coming for the rest of the year. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Young Strap. 
The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Adam Raimonda, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal.